Well, friends, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of the feeding of the 5,000, particularly as that event is portrayed in the Gospel of Mark. And what we saw in that particular event of the feeding of the 5,000 was that that event is a, is a foreshadowing and a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like. That the kingdom of God is like this great heavenly banquet and it's hosted by a king who is compassionate and he loves to throw banquets abundantly. We talked a couple weeks ago that Jesus is a guy who, Jesus loves to party. He really does. In fact, his entire ministry is bookended with parties. Like We noticed that, that he started out his ministry turning water into the finest of wines at the wedding of Cana, and Scripture ends with the marriage banquet of the Lamb. And all between there, we see Jesus showing up at festivals and having dinner parties with people. Jesus ate with all kinds of people. Banquets played an important role in the life of Jesus. That's because banquets tend to play an important role in the entire narrative of Scripture, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. When we think of banquets, what's the one element that you have to have in order to have a banquet? Food. That's right. You cannot have a great banquet if you do not have an abundance of food. You know, food certainly does play an important part of life, doesn't it? Not just because food is that thing that pragmatically gives us energy and sustains us. Food does something else besides just, besides just give us uh, energy. Food actually creates relationships. It does. Think about that for a second. When we gather together, what do we naturally do? We naturally eat together. There's always usually some type of food involved, even if it's just dessert or drinks or something. When we come together, we, we share a meal. And, and, and I think that reality is not just some pragmatic reality about it. I, th- I think that that's actually part of the image of God in us. You see, there's a very real bond that's created through food. When we eat together, what we're doing is that we're both taking in something into our very being. It's becoming a part of both of us. And that act then is creating a bond. You see, food really does create relationships in a mysterious way, both with each other and between us and the Lord. We believe that all good things come from God, that God is the the source of all good things. That's why we give thanks and we show gratitude to God for our meal. And every time we eat, our food is supposed to draw our attention to the presence of the one who has given us this life-sustaining food. A gift is supposed to establish a bond, between, a bond between us and the giver, and food is central to our relationships with God and with each other. That's why banquets and meals are central to Jesus' life, and that's why the Eucharistic meal is central to our worship of Christ. Have you ever noticed when you read Scripture just how many references there are to food? It's actually pretty amazing if you think about it. Food is so ubiquitous that it's easy to overlook its centrality. Let me illustrate this by truncating this down to bookends again. See, Scripture ends with a reference to the tree of life. In the end of Revelation, there's this warning that whoever takes away from the words of the prophecy, God will also take away his share in the tree of life. There's a lot of symbolism there, but it's connected to something that's very tangible. The, the, the tree of life is a symbol of that which is our source and sustenance of life. It's a symbol of God's life-giving gift to us. 
But when we think about the tree of life, where does it originally show up? It shows up at the very beginning. It shows up in creation. Uh, when God first creates Adam and Eve, the first things he says to them are this. Be fruitful and multiply. And then the second thing is every seed-bearing fruit from all the trees all over the world will be given to you. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, it gets more specifically about the tree of life. Isn't it amazing that the first two instructions that God ever gives to Adam and Eve, the first things that's recorded, have to do with procreation and food? Those are the first two things that God says to us. Those are good things. Those are good things that God has blessed and has given to us. But what happens next? The fall. And the consequences of the fall are that there's enmity put between the man and the woman. And the other thing that happens is now we have to work the ground with much difficulty in order to get some food that used to be always originally abundantly at hand, but now is no longer immediately available to us. And we've been dealing with the consequences of that ever since. You see, so when our first parents disobeyed God, it, it was more than just simple disobedience. It was more than just, just breaking a rule. You see, God had put them in the middle of this glorious abundance, and he had given them everything that they needed, but yet they believed the lie that somehow God had withheld some good thing from them, some life-giving thing, and they went looking for life in other places. And it's no coincidental where they thought they might find this other source of life. You see, they thought that they might find it in food that comes from a tree that the Lord told them not to eat from. And so once again, we see food as being central to the Scripture narrative. Food is central to the fall. Because Adam ate the forbidden fruit, all of humanity has ever since been searching for something as simple as our next meal. Right? Humanity was created to eat in abundance. Not gluttonously, but abundance. There's a difference. But in our fallen and broken state, we are left in constant starvation. Humanity was created to eat. That's how God created us. And so to that end, hunger was not originally a bad thing. Hunger was not originally a bad thing. It was something that God created us, created so that we would know that it's time to eat again. And when we did, we would be reminded of God's goodness towards us. But after the fall, hunger has also become corrupted, and it's taken on a different meaning. See, hunger is now what was supposed to remind us of God's abundance, now reminds us that we live in constant scarcity. It's a reminder that we always lack something. And lack leads to fear. And so hunger becomes this constant source of fear. Where is my next meal going to come from? We're always asking that question because we're always hungry. Even if we've just had lunch, just give it a few hours, you'll be looking towards dinner again. It's a constant part of our lives. Now look, I belabor this point a little bit this morning because I think what it does is it helps to set our context for the scripture passage we're going to look at this morning. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 24. In John chapter 6, what we find is John's depiction of the feeding of the 5,000. We're not going to look at that event. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. But what we find in John chapter 6 is this long discourse 
that comes after that event that we call the bread of life discourse. And it's in that conversation in which Jesus will redirect and redefine our deepest hunger and our deepest longings towards himself, who is the true source of life and satisfaction. In fact, in verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that particular verse is actually key to the entire passage we're going to look at this morning, and and we're going to focus on that mainly. But as we kind of pick that apart a little bit, hopefully we'll see how it fits into the larger context and actually holds everything together. So, so let's dive in and look at this passage for just a few minutes. And as we do, let me set one little thing of, of context here. What has happened is that Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And after that event, he ends up, it, it's night, he ends up crossing a lake. He goes to the other side. And when he gets to the other side of the lake, that same crowd who just ate of the loaves and the fish, well, they, they find him. In verse 24, this is what we're told. We're told that they, that meaning the crowds, they got into their boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. And in verse 26, we're told that Jesus knows their motives. He knows what's in their heart and he exposes the reason why they are seeking him. Now, words are important. Don't miss the subtleties of, of important words as you're reading Scripture. The word seeking is a, key, is a key word here. In the Gospel of John, these are the very first words that John ever records Jesus saying. Listen to this. First thing that, that John ever records Jesus saying comes in chapter 1, verse 38. Philip and Andrew are following Jesus who are going to eventually become his disciples. And it says that Jesus turned to them and said, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? That's the very first thing that John ever records Jesus saying. Now, when we read the Bible, the first words of a person in the scripture are very important. In fact, they they give a, a filter through which we can understand what's going on. Like, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, the first words that Mark records Jesus saying is, repent for the kingdom of God has come near to you. Repent and believe the gospel. And those words serve as a filter through which to read the entire gospel of Mark. Well, in John, John tells us that his whole point of writing his gospel is so that we would seek Jesus. That's what he says at the end of his gospel. And so Jesus's first question, what are you seeking? That's not just a historical record of a, of a question that he asked to his disciples. It's a question that's asked of us every single time we open up the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? You see, Jesus can ask that because he knows that we're all seeking something. We're always seeking something. Your friends, your neighbors, those people you meet at the store, they are all seeking something. And this seeking is not just something as simple as, hey, I lost my keys, I need to find them. It's not something as simple as that. No, this idea of seeking is this kind of singular focus of finding this, of finding satisfaction for this restlessness that's in our lives. It's like St. Augustine said, you know, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's the, that's in the soul of every human person. And so it's this singular focus of trying to find what it is that we're looking for and hunger 
more than anything else, hunger more than anything else, makes us go seeking after something to satisfy that hunger. And the question is, well, where do we find it? In John chapter 6, Jesus knows that the crowds are only seeking another meal instead of the one who gave them the meal. And that's actually Jesus' whole point. You see, the original gift of the bread and the fish, the gift was not the end in and of itself. The gift, in that case, which was food, was meant to draw them closer to the giver. Gifts are important. Gifts are always important, but gifts are always secondary. Mostly, most of the time, they're secondary. Gifts are given in order to establish a bond of a relationship. I've been given many gifts over my lifetime that are very important to me, not just because of the object that it is, but because whenever I use it or whenever I see it, it makes me remember and give thanks for the person who gave it to me. That's what gifts do. But in this case, Jesus had given them a gift of bread for the purpose of pointing them back to the giver. But they missed that fact. And all they were focused on was just the gift and trying to get more bread. And so it's into that context that Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So Jesus starts out that phrase with this phrase, I am. Starts out the phrase of I am. This is actually one of, this is actually the first of the seven I am statements that are found in John. And it's in those I am statements where Jesus reveals something about his identity and who he is. And each statement begins with this phrase, I am, and then it's followed by some, some deep metaphor that reveals Jesus' true identity. But the phrase I am is very intentional. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses is standing before the burning bush, and God is commissioning him to go back to Egypt. And he says, but God, who shall I tell them that sent me? Basically asking God for his name, and he, God reveals, he says, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel that I am has sent you. I am is the divine name. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is that he is taking on the divine name and applying it, applying it to himself, and he's making himself equal with God in that verse. There's also another aspect about this particular divine name, this I am, that reveals a, a very deep truth about God. And it's that God in and of himself is self-existent. God is self-existent. God doesn't depend on anything else for his existence. There's nothing prior to his existence. He just is. In fact, God can't not exist. But God is not just another being among beings, another person among persons. No, what's revealed in the idea of the I am is that God is the source of everything that, that exists. All material reality, everything comes from God. All of life, all of existence originates in God. And so when Jesus takes on the divine name and he applies that to himself, what he's doing is he's illustrating what John has said very eloquently in John's opening prologue in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, about Jesus or the Logos or the Word. He says this, John says, He, that's Jesus, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made. For in him, in Jesus, was life. 
and the life was the light of man. See, Jesus doesn't just identify himself with God. He claims to be the very source of all life. Don't miss the weight of that claim. He says, I am the bread of life. He attaches this metaphor of the bread of life. And I think it's no coincidence that bread is the very first metaphor used in the I am statements. You see, in Middle Eastern culture, bread is the most basic of all foods. It's foundational to every single meal. In fact, bread is so basic that it's even synonymous with just food in general. And so, of course, food is that which sustains life. So when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, he's drawing our attention back to this most foundational aspect of his identity. Well, in the flow of this discourse... This statement, the bread of life, it comes as a response to a challenge. In this discourse, the crowds are wanting more proof that he really is who he says that he is, that he really is the one who is sent by God. And so they ask for another sign, and in doing so, they point back to the Exodus story, the story we read just a little bit ago, the, about the manna that was given to them as they wandered around in the desert. And what they say in verse 31 is this, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And as it is written, he, that's Moses they're talking about, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Well, Jesus is going to respond in a way that changes their perspective both on the Exodus and on himself. You see, in verse 32, Jesus says, Well, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, first, Jesus helps them to see that it's not Moses who gave them the bread. Moses was just the messenger, but it came from God himself. It was God's gift to them. The manna was a gift for God, or for, from God for Israel for that specific time. But like all of God's gifts, they always point to a coming greater reality. And we know that that coming greater reality is something that's fulfilled in Jesus. Notice the wording here. See, Israel was given this bread to, to sustain them in the wilderness. But Jesus, and they're talking about something that happened in the past, but Jesus changes the tense of everything. He says, my father, it's my father who gives you, who now gives you this idea of present continuation, who gives you this bread. And it's not just for the sustaining life of Israel, but for the life of the entire world. That's what Israel's original calling and election was for. They were called and they were elected so that they might be a light to the nations, calling the world to come and worship the one creator God. See, he is the bread who brings life through Israel to all whom God has made. That's what Jesus is saying here. But do you also see what Jesus is doing? The crowds were wanting to compare Jesus to Moses. But Moses compares himself to the bread, to God's life-sustaining gift. But Jesus here isn't just making a one-to-one -one comparison. In the story of the Exodus, Israel was commanded to gather up the manna each and every morning and not to save any leftovers. That's because at the end of the day, all the manna would eventually spoil. Right? And here Jesus is expanding their imagination, and he begins to talk about bread that never spoils. In verse 27, he says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that, is, that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. See, Jesus shows them their endeavor 
is futile. They're seeking after something, this bread, that might satisfy them for the moment, but will quickly leave them right back where they started, hungry and seeking after more food. But Jesus quickly calls their attention to this food that doesn't spoil. It's similar to a conversation that he had back in chapter 4, where he meets a woman coming to a well to to draw water. And Jesus does the same thing. He uses this water which will quench her thirst momentarily, but he uses that as a catalyst to point her to water that will quench her thirst eternally. But he's not just talking about water. He's talking about living water. And likewise, in verse 32 in chapter 6, he's not just talking about bread. He's talking about true bread. You see, this perishable life of ours is nourished by perishable food. But the imperishable life that is found only, only in Jesus, that is nourished by imperishable food, living water and true bread. And this is important because you got to, because see, here's what's going on. Jesus doesn't come just to prop up your old life. Jesus was never meant to be something that we just simply add to our old perishing life in order to make it a little bit better and sustain us for just a little bit and satisfy us just a little bit until the inevitable end happens. Jesus came to take our old perishing life and replace it with a new life that's nourished by imperishable food. A perishable life is nourished by perishable food and an imperishable life is nourished by only, only by imperishable food. And so the call here is to go seeking after Jesus, who is the only one who can give us new, a new changed and everlasting life. And that word for life is one of my favorite Greek words, the word zoe. It's not just unending life, life that goes on. It points to this, this quality of life, this deep quality of life that is the life that we'll experience in the age to come when the perishable puts on the imperishable, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But this life is not just for the age to come, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is an experienced reality in the present. See, the promise as Jesus fills out his, uh, finishes out a statement is that anyone who comes to him will never be hungry, and anyone who believes in him will never thirst. And so the invitation is simply this. Come and eat. That's the invitation. Come and eat. And yet, like the crowds... So often, we want more than that. Or we want to make it more complicated than that. In verse 28, they hear this great thing and they say, well, what do we need to be doing to do the works of God? Well, that's human nature to always ask for, what do I need to be doing, right? All we've ever known since the beginning is working hard to find a little bit of food. But Jesus changes it in verse 29. He says, no, no, no. The only, the one work of God the only work of God is that you believe on him whom he has sent. That you simply believe on him whom he has sent. And when we believe, all of our hunger and thirst, it will be quenched. And so the question for us today is, are you truly seeking the fulfillment that is found only in Jesus? Are you truly seeking the fulfillment that is found only in Jesus? And when you find it, Are you partaking of it? You see, food can only do what it was meant to do when it's actually eaten. If we just leave it on the table, it's no good for us. You know, food has to be eaten. It has to be taken into our 
our, our very selves in order to become part of us. That's why when, when we do the Eucharist, I always pray that by eating the body and, and blood of Christ, that Christ would dwell in us and we in him. But friends, so often, so often when we're honest with ourselves, I think we're just, we get a little bit too content to take Jesus, but just leave him on the table. To just take Jesus, to leave him on the table and, and never really partake. And we go looking for sources of life in other places, and then we're wondered why we're so discontented with life. When we leave Jesus on the table and search for other sources of fulfillment, we starve. We starve. But why should we be starving when we, if we are in Christ, we are sitting at a banqueting table? In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, that God has made us alive together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realm of reality with Christ at this great heavenly banquet table. And so, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the the invitation this morning is for you to come and to eat and to receive him so that you would never hunger and thirst again. But if you are in Christ, church, we should never be discontented and starving when we are sitting at the great banqueting table. Christ is our bread of life. He is the giver of, he is both the giver and the gift. The one question that or the one statement that the crowds actually got right at the beginning of this discourse is found in verse 34. And I want this to be our prayer as a church and for you personally. When Jesus is talking about this glorious abundance of this bread of life, they say, Sir, always give us this bread. May that be our prayer, that, that, that Sir, Christ, always give us this bread so that we can eat of him and, and, and always find life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.